Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. This um, <clears throat> series has, is always challenging for me, at least as a, as, a, as a preacher, because you have to look yourself in the mirror, right? And hopefully see what's there. Uh, so that you can talk about it. I, when I teach preaching at the university, I say you can't preach God's word to other people until you've heard it as God's word to you. Um, and so um, this, this series uh, is um, challenging to me, and this text particularly that we look at this morning is challenging to me because, again, it underlines the point that we're trying to make is we want people to be fully formed disciples of Jesus. Uh, we recognize that in that, uh, is our usefulness. We become more and more useful to God in his work in saving the world. That's what he's up to. That's what he's, he's uh, invested himself in since 10 minutes after Genesis 3. Uh, from our perspective, since before the foundations of the earth, from his perspective, he has been about the work of inviting us into a partnership with him uh, to be his image. That's what he created us to be. Uh, and now he has been attempting to train us in being his image with knowledge of good and evil that we were never intended to have. Um, and so the, the challenge is not just to become spiritually mature. The challenge is to recognize there is no spiritual maturity without a parallel maturity uh, in, in our emotions, in our spirituality, in, uh, excuse me, in our, in, our, in, in our relationships and all of the other things that, that go along with that. Uh, so we've talked about the necessity a couple of weeks ago of looking uh, beneath the surface and seeing what's actually there. And that kind of opens up Pandora's box where we begin to discover, oh, there's stuff in there that I haven't looked at for years, um, that, uh, but still nonetheless has exercised kind of gravitational influence on the ways that I process my relationships, uh, etc. I can't blame anybody, including my parents, for who I am. But it was helpful uh, for me, at least, to look in the mirror last week and say, oh, yeah, there's, there's some strands here that I recognize as being generational. It's, coming, it's, it's not about a generational curse over which I have no choice. It's not about I can't repent for my father's sins. But I have to be aware how my father's and mother's sins work themselves out in my life. Otherwise, I'm blindsided by my anger. I'm blindsided by um, some of the things. And, and if, I'm, if I'm not careful, I will be using um, my father's sins as an excuse for my bad behavior towards my spouse or towards the guy on the freeway. Uh, or to the clerk at Vaughn's. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Um, and Jesus is interested in us in, be, in, in becoming the kinds of people he can trust. And so we need to take seriously the ways in which we have uh, been broken, the ways in which we have embraced brokenness as an excuse uh, for poor um, uh, treatment of ourselves and of others. Uh, and so today, uh, last week, we looked at breaking the power of the past, the realization that since Genesis 3, we all come in some form or another from dysfunctional families, and the strategy is already found in Genesis 2 to differentiate from our families of origin and invite the Holy Spirit to 
to kind of reparent us and learn how to be the kinds of people uh, that he wants us to be. Uh, Genesis 3 rebellion um, uh, results in each of us having brokenness at core levels of our identity. Uh, uh, um, uh, personal, social, spiritual, and this isn't a, this isn't a, let's all be broken together and sit in a pile of brokenness. But it is in a sense that we have to say, if you don't know you're broken, you're still broken. And the brokenness that we don't acknowledge actually exercises more power and influence over us than the brokenness that we actually acknowledge. That's the hard part, right? Um, that, that when we, we, uh, we, we see the, 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 the vulnerability that we're called into and we're afraid of that, um, we, have, we have learned since Genesis 3 um, how, to, how to mask and hide our, our nakedness, our brokenness. We hide and we lie in medication and numbing pain uh, of, of self-awareness. We blame others or we blame God in anger and uh, resentment. And every time we blame somebody else for who we are, please notice we're hiding from the self that we are. If I blame my wife or blame my husband or blame my boss or blame my random strangers or the government or whomever else, I mean, we are all conspiracy theorists when it finally comes down to accepting responsibility ultimately for our own lives. It's somebody else's fault and problem. No, actually, it isn't. We all walk with a limp. We all have layers of awareness that we want to lean into, and the more healthy we are, the more we embrace our brokenness, offer it up to see what Jesus might make use of it to do and to help us to become. We, we run away from relationships when they get too close or where they become unmanageable. And of course, the truth is, like I said, since Genesis 3, Jesus didn't, didn't come for the sick. I mean, he came for the sick. He didn't come for the healthy. And the truth is, he's got his tongue in his cheek when he says that. Because who among us doesn't need a savior? Right? And, and the, 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 the hard news for the Pharisees among us, myself included, is that if I don't think I need a savior, I don't get the benefit of the savior who actually came. Because I'm not, I'm, this is why we killed him in the first place, yeah? He wasn't the Messiah we thought we needed. We thought we, all we needed was somebody to lead us into battle and beat up our enemies. And he said, well, we've met the enemy, and it's us. So we got to start there. Take up your cross and follow me. Don't you all be taking up other people's crosses. Take up yours and follow me, right? So this is what we're invited into. The more we hide our brokenness, the more power it has, the more we bring it to the surface, the more we invite Jesus into it, we discover something absolutely stunning. We have been living in an upside-down universe. We've been flying blind, trusting the instruments, only to discover that the universe, the universe has been upside-down since Genesis 3, and God seeks to write it. What we think is vulnerability and brokenness is actually the place and space of great strength and power. That's what we discover. So we, 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 we learn that through weakness and vulnerability are the core strategies of the kingdom. 
They are ways of, 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 of seeing life through death, of seeing that seed dying and bringing new life, of seeing in the final revelation, in, Revel, in, in, the, in Revelation of Jesus, we celebrate the lion only to discover that really what he is at the end of the day is the lamb slain before. We don't, we don't, we don't, let, we, we love the lion image, yeah? There's very few sports teams that would embrace the image of the lamb slain before. Lion, yeah, we're the lions. I teach at a university. Our sports teams are the lions. <laughs> All that aside, we serve a savior who could be a lion anytime he wanted to be and chose instead to be a lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And then he had the audacity to lean into our lion tendencies and say to us, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. It's the only way, by the way, in which lions won't hurt others. So, we follow the Apostle Paul in this. Uh, he says this in his vision. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things which no one is permitted to tell. And I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except in my weaknesses. Because even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to tempt me, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This um, is an elliptical argument for Paul. We believe that the person he is speaking of in that first paragraph is himself that he has had these great visions, that he has been caught up into this extraordinary spiritual experience, and that rather than traffic in his spiritual superiority, which he is tempted to do, he chooses instead to refer to the person who shared, who experienced, who went through that in the third person and leave him kind of on the shelf. He says, I could boast, 
And remember, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, the church that arguably was more arrogant, was more invested in power, was more interested in position than any city in the history of the world, save perhaps our own. They didn't celebrate weakness. They killed it. They didn't celebrate vulnerability. They masked it with a false veneer of superiority, what Paul and Philippians will call empty conceit. The lights are on of your conceit, but nobody's home. You have nothing about which to be conceited. I mean, if you were all that in a bag of chips, maybe we could understand it, but you're not. Do, do, do you see what he's doing here? And he says, I, 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 I could tell you the stories of this guy, but I don't want you to think of me in the light of those revelations. At the end of the day, those revelations were, in fact, none of my business. I don't know what to make them. I can't even talk about them. Anybody just for 10 minutes like an experience like that? That for the rest of your life, you look back on it and just think, oh, man, I wish I had words. Don't have words. Can't talk about it. Shape my soul to the very core of it, but I can't tell anybody about it. No book tour, no television interviews, nothing. I just, I just have to live with the extraordinary wonder of who God is revealed to me to be, and I can't tell anybody about it. And because God doesn't always trust us with extraordinary visions like that, he said to Paul, fundamentally, I need you to stay really tightly tethered to the dirt here, buddy. People will not be, at the end of the day, impressed by your glorious visions. What I want them to be impressed with, with how normal you are, with how ordinary you are, with how much like them you are. Corinth does not need more examples of people who have got their act together or appear to have their act together. What Corinth needs, what Long Beach needs, is more people who embrace the brokenness that is evident all around us and lead in the embrace of that brokenness to the grace of God which is sufficient. Right? I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm tired uh, to the point where I don't even listen anymore of folks who just have it all together, whose marriages are perfect, whose kids are stunning. Right? Because I don't know anybody like that. I'm not like that. My marriage is, has been a struggle for almost 40 years at some level or another. It's been wonderful, it's been glorious, but I gotta tell you, my marriage was improved in significant degrees when I stopped expecting it to be perfect. When I realized marriage is not about happy, least of all mine. <laughs> marriage, <laughs> marriage is about holiness. Marriage is about being formed to Christ-likeness. Jesus arranged strategically behind my back 
that I would fall in love with a woman who will enable me to become like him because she is not at all understandable to me. And I have to learn to live with somebody who I cannot figure out for the life of me? Anybody else know what I'm talking about here? No. I mean, come on. But do you see what he's doing here? He says, look, we can boast in these things. And the truth is, we don't even know what Paul was talking about when he talked about these, this, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. We don't know what he was talking about. Specul sickness, physical handicap, uh, blindness, an explosive temper. We see all of this stuff in Paul. We don't, we don't know what it was. Maybe it was just a besetting sin that he just could not get away from. I, I can't help but think that part of Paul's celebration of grace was because he recognized his deep need of it. He recognized that if this is about me finally getting my act together, there's no hope. It's not going to happen. So I think we are deliberately left hidden to allow us to get in under the umbrella. Anybody identify with any of this language? Weaknesses, thorns messengers of the adversary, accusations. Anybody recognize any of those near neighbors? I mean, come on. Why? Well, because he wants us to stay grounded. He wants us to keep firmly attached. He wants us, in short, to be humble. Humble is not thinking bad things about yourself. It's certainly not agreeing with the lies that buzz around in your head. Humble is agreeing with God about the nature of your reality. That's it. It, it. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't think more lowly of yourself than you ought to think. Between those two prideful swings of the pendulum, because they're both pride, negative pride is the most damaging and difficult because it masquerades as false humility. Right? H humility does not say... It was nothing, humility says, of a compliment, thank you, and then lets it go. Do, do you see? So, so humility is in between these two swings of the pendulum of pride. Accurate self-concept, positive self-regard. I see the self that God sees, and I love him the way God loves him or her. And then we can live in unselfconsciousness. I don't have to be checking myself out in the mirror every time I walk past a plate glass window. <laughs> and we do this in all kinds of ways, right? We do this in all kinds of ways. It's like, cut it out. Who do you expect to see? In the, you don't even see the person you actually are when you look in that mirror. This is the point. This is the point. So he gave us a, a, a messenger of Satan. I hate it when he uses Satan for his purposes. But we ought to have expected it. This happened with Jesus. We ought to expect it to happen with us. He keeps, wants to stay aware, in spite of all the spiritual highs he's experienced, that he's nothing more and nothing less than a sinner saved by in his last letter to his friend Timothy, this is what he identified. I'm the worst of all sinners. And it doesn't matter. Grace 
is sufficient. So in a culture that prized power, prestige as much as ours does, in which Paul himself had been ridiculed in church, dismissed by these very people because he didn't fit their understanding of someone they ought to listen to. He didn't fit the celebrity culture. Paul, who could have played the card, says, I'm, I'm going to talk about how broken I am. I'm going to talk about how weak I am. I'm going to talk about my inadequacy. I'm going to talk about the fact that I'm not enough, not even for my own life. And if you think you are, it's not your life you're living. Every one of you sitting in this space this morning is not enough for the life God has for you. And until we accept the, the, the things that cripple us, the brokenness, this is that true nature of humility. We are stuck in a life that gets smaller and smaller to the point that we can manage it. Do you see? We're built for eternity, for crying out loud. You sitting here this morning will exist in your essential personhood 10,000 years from now. Everything around you will change. Everything around you will die. Everything, everything will be different. But you in your essential self, self will still be on a trajectory towards usefulness in the kingdom. Of course you're not adequate for your life. It's bigger than you are. Catch up. But the way we catch up is by recognizing we're not inadequate for our life. We just don't have it. I'm just not enough. I need grace. I need grace. I need grace. Here's the deal. The more mature you become, the more grace you consume. Grace is not just for beginners. It includes for beginners. But it's not like, okay, thanks, we got it started. We'll take it from here. Where are you going to take it? And with what energy and capacity will you take it? Paul says, God's grace is made perfect in my embraced weakness. He has learned this from Jesus, who although he had measureless power, the name above every name, that at his name every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. How did he get that? By never exercising it. By dying. This is, what, this is what confused the principalities and the powers. Do, do you see? This, this was completely off the reservation of their understanding. Jesus saved the world through embraced weakness. This is the genius of the cross. So Paul here has a whole theology of shared pain in which his brokenness now becomes uh, a doorway through which grace can stream in mercy. But more than that, it helps him in his growth to Christ's likeness. Listen to what he says in Philippians. Whatever things were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, which is a polite word considering what he actually says. Then I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that's my own, 
that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God himself on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to, therefore, participate in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death so that I can somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. I wish we could spend some time on this one. But please notice what he's saying here is in my own sufferings. And for Paul, they were considerable, yeah? For you, they are considerable, yes? Whatever they are. Whatever they are. He wants to make, he doesn't want to waste a single pain. He doesn't want to waste a single betrayal. He doesn't want to waste a single moment of vulnerability because in his own sufferings, whatever kind they are, allow him to identify with and learn from Jesus to share in Christ's sufferings. You think you're the only one whose friends have betrayed him? Come on. Learn from Jesus how you handle a soul wrecked by the betrayal of friends. You think you're the only one whose enemies have sought to crucify you in some form or shape or another? Learn from him! Who was literally hung on a cross by those who regarded him as their enemy, but whom he did not regard as his enemy. Oh, man, Jesus, are you serious? Well, if you want to be useful, you did pray that you might be like me, did you not? Well, how do you think I got to be me? You see, the writer of Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. How do you think you're going to learn it? You see, suffering is, 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 is only damaging if we don't accept that it's damaging. We, we share in Christ's sufferings. And so Paul, like Jesus before him, knows that life only comes to, embrace, to those who embrace the ways of death. Those who deny their brokenness, who mask it over, who medicate it, who try and create a veneer of success, who's living for the applause and that's enough. How many times, how many more celebrity suicides, how many more... Drunken brawls do we need to experience before we recognize that the people who we think have it all together themselves admit over and over again, I don't have it all together. Paul says, why don't we just cut to the chase? Vulnerability is a strategy for the kingdom. Here's Jesus. Luke chapter 10. The Lord appointed 72 others, sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place that he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters, workers into his harvest field. Now look, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. What? Yeah, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If somebody promotes peace who lives there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. 
Stay there. Eat and drink whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. Did you catch that? I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Anybody see that line in the job description? When you go, don't take resources with you. Take, don't, did you catch this? Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. Do you see what he's doing? He's training us to go in the way that he came. He didn't come on a great white charger with a flaming sword in his hand, and he could have. He came as a vulnerable, tiny, little baby who, had not a 16-year-old girl fed him, would have died. I look at my little granddaughter. She's starting to leave home already at six weeks. She's feisty. But if Michelle doesn't feed her, McKenna Grace dies. And Jesus says, that's how I'm sending you all out into the world. I'm sending you out vulnerable. I'm sending you out empty. I'm sending you out without adequate resources. I'm sending you out like, like, like sheep among wolves. I want you to be consumed by this world the way I was. What? I, I, I want to be the strong, apologetic. I want to I wanna slay the dragons. I want to kill the giants. Well, okay, give it a shot. And when you failed at that, come back home. And let's see how the sheep among wolves things works out. Can I just be honest, friends? My heart has been broken this week again and again and again by the vitriol and the anger and the power posturing. And I'm not just talking about Facebook. I'm talking about the ways that we relate to one another. The damage we do to eternal souls because our insecurity and fear push us to displays of power rather than to understanding that everybody else is broken like you are. This is why Jesus said, oh, man, blessed are you if you've been so beaten up by life that all you can do is hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you if you have suffered catastrophic loss and define yourself by your grief. Blessed are you who are simple-minded Why? Well, yours is the kingdom. That's how it comes. Vulnerability is a strategy. We are invited into this. This is the strategy of love. This is the strategy of welcome and embrace. Notice what happens when you come to the stranger and invite him to meet your need. You create a bond, a connection that enables the kingdom to break in. This is his strategy. Acknowledge brokenness. Acknowledge vulnerability. Acknowledge need. Create spaces of connection between people. We discover what we ought to have known all along. We desperately need each other. None of us, despite our 401k, is enough for the life that we are called to live. 
None of us can do without community. It is not good for us to try and do life alone. And vulnerability is that space in your puzzle piece that somebody else is supposed to fit into. It's not a deficit in your part. It's a welcoming of their part. Creates points of connection. Empowers those around us. This is the strategy uh, that Jim Daly, who is the president, new president, relatively new president, after James Dobson, a focus on the family. I've told you a story, I think, before. A few years ago, he noticed that the state of Colorado in which Focus on the Family is headquartered is number one in terms of human trafficking in the United States because of the through line up from Mexico and to Mexico. And he realized that Focus on the Family had not inadequate resources. So we've reached out to a man who had vilified him publicly in the media, a guy named Ted Trimpa, who was the attorney and chief lobbyist for the LGBT community lobbying for gay rights in the state of Colorado. He personally didn't have his people call his people. He phoned him up himself. And Ted, when he tells the story, says, after I had picked myself up off the floor, he and I began a conversation about how we together might address human trafficking in the state of Colorado. We disagree about very fundamental things. But he needed me to help him. And it was not long before I realized that I needed him to help me. And out of this has been formed a friendship that persists to this day. So much so that when uh, Trimpa had a heart attack, it was Jim Daly who arranged for his care. Not about converting the world. That's not our business. That's the business of the Holy Spirit. It is about embracing our vulnerabilities to create stickiness in our relationships. Right? I mean, and, and this, this, it's when I finally acknowledged what everybody around me knew, that I had a temper, that I was angry, that finally I began to make progress in learning how to be angry. Do you see what I mean? It's when I, when I embraced my defensiveness as a sign, not that people are out to get me, but there's actually something seriously wrong with me, that I began to recognize, oh, now my defensiveness is one of my best friends. If I'm sitting in a meeting and somebody criticizes an idea, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I teach university students who 21 years old think they know more than I do and challenge me in class, in public, on things that I am saying out loud under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. How I respond to those folks you little snob. No, no I, we, don't, we don't go there. Why? Because I've learned more things from the people who challenge me than I do from the people who celebrate me. I can go all day having the attaboy and learn not one single thing. And because of my family system, believe all of those people are deluded because they don't know squat about what's really going on. 
I'm just afraid someday somebody's going to discover that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like you all here today. <laughs> so when I'm challenged, when I'm criticized, when I'm attacked in some form or another, and that's a strong word and it's probably too strong, although it feels like it to me, I thank God. Somebody loves me enough to call me on my crap. And it might be that they're wrong. But I want to be vulnerable enough that a 20-year-old kid can say to me, I think you're wrong. And for me not to dismiss him out of hand because he's clearly an idiot who knows nothing <laughs> and receive the gift of a brother or sister who loves me enough to ask hard questions. Especially when 95% of the time he's found the one part of my argument that doesn't make sense. Oh, crap. I hadn't thought of that. Can you help me? Can you help me? Will you mind taking, going out for coffee? I'll buy. I won't, how, how, do you, how should we think about that? It was when I finally acknowledged the fact of my pornography addiction back 35 years ago that the journey to health and wholeness began. And now I can help both women and men out of that addiction. I wish to God it had never happened. I wish to God it had never just about blown up my marriage, but it did. There you go. And because of that, Jesus offered, I tried to offer it up, has now made it a means by which to help I think, folks out of that type of brokenness. Does it make sense? I, I discovered pretty quickly, there's a few things that I can do fairly well. I have some gifts that I bring to the table. Way more that I suck at. <laughs> Anybody else? This is what you ought to expect. You ought to be good at three or four things, two or three things, one or two things. So that there's room for people who don't excel at those things. But if I think I'm all that and can do everything, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but when I, if, you came, if you met me 40 years ago on a Sunday morning, I would have led worship. I would have given the announcements. What are you laughing at? We're not done yet. <laughs> I, I would have directed the choir for, because we had a choir back in those days. It was in another millennium. Um, we, we, I, I would have played the piano for the special music for the offertory. I would have preached the sermon. Perfectly. <laughs> what are we doing? It was when I finally realized, you're, you're really pretty good at one thing. A couple other things you're not bad at. The rest, give to somebody else who's better. And I, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I had to find somebody who I viewed, I viewed, this is my stupid, as only 85 to 90% as good as me. Anybody want to listen to me ever again? <laughs> I mean, it's just, come on! Do, do, do you see what we're after here? When I say I don't know, 
Not only is it true, but it also creates rooms for others who might. When I say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? It opens up the floodgates of community. This is the power of AA, for example. Brokenness is not an excuse. It's not a justification to entitlement or special privilege or protection. It's not an excuse for rudeness. It's not an excuse for the mistreatment of others. I have to acknowledge and accept my brokenness because that leads me to greater compassion for people that I deal with who are like me, broken. Failure to acknowledge my brokenness will push me towards a false harshness, a judgment, almost a condemnation of others. And especially along the same fault lines. You know what I've just noticed? I'm going to quit with this. I've noticed that the things that bother me most in other people I'm just looking in the mirror. You know that pride that has the biggest voice in the room that just annoys me? Yeah, I want somebody to listen to me. What do we And Jesus says, "Come along, sheep." Come along. Come along. The beauty of embraced brokenness is the invitation to compassion and patience and grace for our fellow travelers, like God has shown to us. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.